I'm glad to be here today with you. My name is Wesley Price. I'm a member here, and I serve on the, my Boulevard team with Dehadi and the rest of the Boulevard crew. Uh, normally, you see me over there playing the guitar or sometimes over here singing. But it's my honor today to walk through the scriptures with you. And I just want to start uh, by calling out the elephant in the room. The passage that we're dealing with today, it's one of several passages in the New Testament, and it brings up very strong feelings. The word submit does not land well with many of us. And the idea of headship, it smells like blatant patriarchy. But I want to set you at ease this morning. Today's message is about the love of Christ and how it can and will compel us to love one another. We'll deal with the words as we get to them. But I want you to rest assured today that mostly we're going to peer into the heart of God and see what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God so that we're devoted to each other in love. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into this beautiful text. Let's pray. Father of the living Christ, please open our eyes to see that you are already patiently waiting on us to turn our hearts toward you. Open our ears to hear your loving invitation to be formed by your mercy and your grace. Open our hearts to trust you and entrust our lives to you. Use your word now, please, to lead, guide, and direct us by your Holy Spirit to be formed to the image of your much-loved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I actually want to start... Uh, in verse 22 of chapter 5 in Ephesians. And I want to read to you literally what it says in the original. It goes like this. Ladies, to their own husbands, as to the Lord. Do you see anything missing there? Yeah, we're missing a word, we're missing a verb. So, okay, in the Greek language, sometimes that, that happens, and you just go back to the, the phrase before it, and you grab a verb there, and it depends on that verb. So let's go back to the previous verse, uh, verse 21. And it literally says, willingly cooperating with one another out of reverential love for the Messiah. Now, your translation may not say that, but that's the, the freedom that I've taken here, just translating literally. But are we still missing anything? We're missing, okay, so grammar nerds, you know that an a, a, a independent clause or a sentence has got to have a full-on verb in it. And if, if you've ever been an English teacher or submitted something to an English teacher, you know that if you submit a sentence that doesn't have a full-on verb in it, then you're going to get some red ink on your paper, right? So we need a full-on verb to hang this part of speech. It's called a participle. Let's get, let's get nerdy for a little bit, uh, which means it participates in the action of the sentence but can't bear the full weight of action in the sentence. So what do we do? Well, here's what we do. We have to float all the way up to verse 18 to find a full-on verb that this participle hangs on. I know this is a little, a little bit technical, but, but hang with me. There's a point, okay? 
If we go to verse 18, we find the main verb that anchors this entire section of Paul's letter. And the verb is this, keep being filled up by the Spirit. It's in verse 18. So everything that we're going to look at today, it depends on that. And what Paul says is in dis, you know, contrast to that. Don't be filled up with wine. That's excessive. It's just a flood. Paul has some imagery here. It's literally just something you flood yourself with, and then it floods the drain. In other words, filling yourself up with wine to be drunk, it's just a vain attempt to fill yourself up, and it doesn't fill. It might offer some relief, but it doesn't offer what the Spirit of God is offering. In fact, the Spirit of the living God is to replace our vain attempts to fill ourselves up. And Paul is calling us to that because self-medication is not the same as healing. And sometimes we use things, not just wine, but other substances, activities. We do things to try to fill and mask over pain and emptiness because we just want a quick fix and something to medicate, take the pain away. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. If you will not do something to try to fill yourself up, if you will let the Spirit of God fill you up, then what the Spirit of God will bring is healing. If we bring our full selves to this God, we can experience healing as he fills us up with the spirit of the living God. And if we do that, if we're willing to turn toward healing, and listen, some of you today, all of us today, let's be honest, turning toward healing is hard because it means that we literally have to go down into the basement of our own lives and deal with stuff down there that we do not want to deal with. We've all been hurt. Some of us have been harmed, which means somebody did it on purpose. Some of us have experienced abuse and trauma. And it's hard to take that stuff and entrust it to God who says, hey, if you'll trust me with this, I'll fill you up with my spirit and I'll bring healing to that stuff. You can bring your story to me and I'll bring healing to that. And see, if we do that, if we do turn toward that healing, we get some results. And that's what the rest of the verses under 18 are showing us. Be filled with the Spirit, and then there's some results. Fellowship. You'll speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Worship. You'll make a melody in your heart to God. Gratitude. Giving thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. And then we get to the neighborhood of our passage today. Verse 21, you'll get family. That's the neighborhood we're going to park in here today, Ephesians 22 to 33. And it's kind of like this. I kind of want to set it up like this. Since you're being filled up by the Holy Spirit, because if you're in Christ, you are, then how do we show the love of Jesus to each other? How do we do family? And in order to understand that, Paul calls the whole church to it. And he uses marriage as an example of it. See, because the point of verse 21 is to say, hey, we've got to be devoted to one another and show the love 
of Christ. But I want to talk about something by way of introduction just a little bit more. And that is an important thing that we're going to have to deal with in the text. And that is points of comparison. All right? Now, when you compare something, two things, the points of reference really matter. Okay? Now, some of you know that I play guitar. If you were, after a service, to come up to me and say, I'm going to try to use a guitar player that most people know about, right? You'd say, hey, you play a little bit like John Mayer. First of all, that'd be a great compliment. <laughs> you can do that anytime. But secondly, it sits very differently than if you were to come up to me at the end of the service and say, hey, John Mayer plays a little bit like you. That's very different. See, John Mayer's the celebrity. I'm just the ordinary. If you get the points of comparison mixed up, it doesn't quite make the same amount of sense. We're also going to see that when you compare two things, some things that one thing has, they don't transfer over to the other. All right? Um, if I get on YouTube for 30 minutes to play the guitar, like three people are going to watch. Right? My, my wife, my mom, and like some rando. But if John Mayer gets on YouTube live and he plays for 30 minutes, thousands of people are going to watch. Right? So the point of comparison of like, hey, you play like John Mayer, it totally breaks down at that point. Plus, I also have a wife that I love in a loving relationship instead of whatever heartbreak John Mary is on this week. Anyway, I love you, John, if you're listening. Okay. But that point of comparison is important because I need us to see before we even dive into the text that Jesus is the celebrity here. He is extraordinary. So when Jesus and the church are being compared or Jesus and husbands are being compared, you've got to understand he's the celebrity. He's extraordinary. The husbands are ordinary. And even marriage is ordinary compared to the love of Christ. The love of Christ is the point, okay? So let's jump in. And we're going to start at verse 21, and I, I, I want to just go ahead and dive right into this word submit, okay? It's in the text. We need to understand it. And listen, I am not one of the elders at this church, okay? I'm a member here. So I'm going to give you options in the text today. I'll give you options. If you want to know what the official position of this church is in terms of how to correctly interpret these passages— Go blindside an elder at the end of this service and ask them, what do you think? But I'm going to give you options today because I think it's important that we see the possibilities that are in this text. When we get to this word submit in verse 21, it's a very interesting term. It's usually used in a military context. And when it's used in a military context, it has the effect of, sir, yes, sir. Submit, fall under orders. But it's also used in a civilian context, outside of military context in the first century. And when this word is used in that context, it is much more like I translated it earlier. Willingly cooperate or participate in something. So what I want us to focus on is the common denominator between these two ideas of submission. And the common thread, the common denominator is that of faithfulness, loyalty, and allegiance. 
a commanding officer would expect loyalty, allegiance to the side that they're on. And in our relationship to one another in the church or in marriage, we need to have an expectation of faithfulness and loyalty and trust. So we're going to camp out there when we go through the passage, okay? Because I, I really think that this is very similar to what Paul is saying in Romans 12. He, he says, he, he shares this idea in other places, the idea of partnership, the idea of cooperation, the idea of being together like a family. In Romans 12, verse 9, he says this, love must be real. So hate what is evil, stick fast to what is good, be truly affectionate in showing love for or be devoted to one another. Compete with each other in giving mutual respect. Don't get tired of working hard. Be on fire with the Spirit and work as servants for the Lord. These ideas overlap with the ideas we're going to hear today in this passage. So, we're going to focus on the common thread as we go to this text and now head to verse 22. Wives, Paul says, I want to understand it this way. Be devoted to your husbands as unto the Lord. Paul is always concerned with the heart posture. Sometimes we think he's very concerned about behaviors, and he does point out behaviors. But Paul is ultimately very concerned with the posture of the heart. And he's presenting something to wives that's an extraordinary invitation. In the first century, be devoted and faithful from your heart to your husband. Wives in the first century were not expected to do this. They were expected to obey. Marriage was sometimes very transactional. It was a social arrangement. It was a kind of thing that you had to do not necessarily something that was like the pinnacle of our life that we kind of have now in our culture and our you know, Western idea of marriage. Like it was something that, all right, you and you, y'all are gonna get married one day and here's how it's gonna be. And this is just what you're gonna accept this. A very different world and a different perspective on marriage. And Paul is calling and inviting wives to something that's much more like God's original intention for marriage that we see in Genesis 2. Be devoted to your husband in love. He's concerned about the heart posture. And then he gives a reason, okay? Why? Well, you see, man is the head of the woman. I worked for a man, his name was Logan Carson. And Dr. Carson was married to Glenwood Carson, and we called her Ms. Pep. Now, Ms. Pep, if you ever brought this passage up to her to say, you know, the, the, the husband is the head of the wife, you might know what's coming. She would say, yeah, but the wife, she's the neck. <laughs> In other words, the head doesn't turn without her, right? <laughs> Again, when you come to this term, this idea of head, you have options. Yeah, in some ways, a head is a command center. It tells the rest of the body what to do. But the head is also the source of nourishment and care for the body. Without a head, you can't take in food and nourishment for the rest of the body, for the benefit of the body. 
This word head is also used sometimes in a context to understand the source of something, like the head of a river, the source of it. That's actually interesting if you think about it, because Paul is drawing on Genesis 2 later. So it's in his mind. It's in the background. Why would that matter? Because in Genesis 2, when Adam wakes up and he sees this woman that God has formed, he breaks into poetry and he says, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. She shall be called woman. The Hebrew there is isha, because she was taken from man. The word is ish, ish, isha. He's literally the source of this thing that God created, taking something from his side and creating a woman. You have options. Even if you translate it head, what's the point of the head in the reference? Well, it could mean in charge but it could mean source of nourishment and care. Now, the point of comparison opens up now. Remember, points of comparison have limitations. They can't all share the same features. But when we look at Christ, this point of comparison opens up more because the Messiah too, he's head of the church. He himself is the savior of the body, you see, because Jesus is in charge of the church. And he is the source of nourishment for the church. He is the source of the church. It is founded on him. So when we look at Christ as the head, it's fair to say he's the source, he's in charge, he nourishes, he saves, he redeems the body, and he makes sure that the body is taken care of. You have options. Which one of those ideas of Christ as the head of the church, transferred to the husband being the head of the wife. I'll leave it to you to study. And I'll leave it to you to ask the elders. <laughs> but see, you already see, though, a picture that's forming, an expectation that Paul has for husbands that's it's pretty steep. And it's about to get even more steep, right? Because he points out this idea in verse 24, the church is to be devoted to Christ in the same way that women must be devoted in every respect to their husbands. Okay? So if the church is to be devoted to Christ and the wife is supposed to be devoted to the husband, he sure better behave a certain way. And Paul's about to get there right now. So he says in verse 25, husbands, I'm going to translate it this way. Be emotionally attached to your wife as you care for her in love. Guys, this is a radical idea in the first century. A man was not expected, would not have been in some sense ordered to love his wife in the first century. All he would have to do is keep her in line. That would be expected. Women didn't enjoy the same perspective that women enjoy now. We'll get to that in a minute. But to love them? 
And to use a word that means, no, really care for them from the depth of who you are, attached to them, emotionally care. That was not expected. Provide? Yeah. Order the household? Yeah. Make sure that things get done? Sure. But love? And I can almost see in the first century, it's like, you know, a husband and wife sitting next to each other. They've been in this kind of domestic arrangement, and they've just kind of gone through the motions of like, this is what you do. And they're looking at each other like, we have to like love each other? I mean, that could be cool because it's not the normal expectation of marriage in the first century. And then Paul lays it on even more. Yeah, love her, care for her, set her highest good above the interests of yourself. And who's the example of this? Of course, as Christ, he loved the church and he gave himself for it so that he could make it holy, cleansing it by washing it with water through the word. Now again, there are properties, the point of comparison that can transfer and those that can't. So the man can love his wife sacrificially like Christ loved the church, but he's not making her pure. He's not making her holy. Only Jesus does that. But while we're on the topic, it's really interesting. It's really interesting that Paul kind of parks here for a moment. And he says, look, here's the effect of what Jesus does for the church. And in the original, he's using the pronoun she so that he could make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word. And he did this in order to present the church to himself in brilliant splendor without a single spot or blemish or anything of the kind that she might be holy and without blame. Paul is sliding something in here in between the pages, folks. And I don't want you to miss this. In the first century, women were viewed through a Jewish lens as potential contaminants for the social environment. This is because the Mosaic law made provisions. At least once a month, there would be purification rites you'd have to undergo. If you ever had a child, there would be purification rites that you'd have to undergo. And before you were married, there were purification rites that you would have to undergo. This led to an idea and a view of women in the first century that if a woman shows up, there's a good chance she could contaminate the social setting. It's unfortunate. It's not helped at all by the Gentile view, thanks Aristotle, that women are sub standard humans. Yeah, Aristotle, that guy. You put all these things together, women weren't thought of very much in the first century. But I think that the reason that Paul layers things in the way that he does is because he is saying, we will have none of that in the church. Why? Because the wife, the woman, the language that's used, she's cleansed, she's made pure. It's the work of Christ. And he has done this permanently so that she ought to receive full admission into the community. No partial admission where she has to go run and hide at certain times of the month and certain times of life. No, full admission to community and full access to the word of God. And that is an idea that will get you run out of town in the first century. 
because it includes in it access to the word of God and I also believe access to education. Well, nobody wants to do that in the first century. Oh, nobody except Jesus. See, Paul is, I need you to understand this. When you come to Paul's letters, he is very concerned with social order, okay? The Romans are waiting to find an excuse to execute people, okay? So, so social order and maintaining it to some degree is very important because the gospel needs to keep going forward. And if we lose some structure, if we go into chaos, bad things will happen and the gospel will not keep moving forward. But at the same time, Paul also is very aware of the foundation that Jesus has laid for the kingdom of God that guarantees access to all to the presence of God. Slave, free, Jew, Gentile, male, female, does not matter. All have access and are welcome. And we know this for sure. If you look at that story with Mary and Martha, Martha doesn't just get upset because Mary's not helping in the kitchen. It's because, look at the words in the text. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. That is a term that is used when somebody studies under a rabbi in the first century. She's enrolled in Jesus's seminary. And Martha ain't very happy about that. What does this mean? I'm nervous. Can you tell her to come help? She's choosing the better thing, Martha. You're worried about a lot of things, but she's chosen the better thing. Paul slides this in, okay? He's just sliding it in between the pages. You'll see him do that too when it comes to slaves and masters. He's gonna slide something into the page. He's gonna say, yeah, you gotta hold on to social order, but guess what? You need to view each other as equal standing before God. And that's radical. All right, I'm, I'm getting off my soapbox. But I think it's important to see. These ideas are almost ridiculous in the first century. But let's not forget the point. The point is Jesus and his love for the church. And so when he calls husbands to love their wives, and he reminds them that their wives deserve full acceptance in the community and full admission and, and, and full access to the word, which by the way, I think there's something there too. Who could read in the first century? Public education for women was very, very slowly developed in Roman colonies, but, but not really in, in, in Jewish settlements. There was some layer of education, but it didn't guarantee the ability to read. Especially Jewish men were trained to read and read the scriptures. So Paul's putting it on the husbands. Husbands, it's actually your responsibility to make sure she has access to the word of God. In these ways, verse 28, a husband ought to love their own wives. And that word ought, we can just slide right by it, but don't. Paul's got something to say there. He says, in effect, husbands, you're under a moral obligation to love her. This word ought, it's the same word that is in the Lord's prayer to mean debt, 
to forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, debt, who, who, are, who are indebted to us. So forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? In other words, you're indebted to Christ to love your wife. You owe it to her and to him to love your wife in this way. And then he sets a baseline, folks. Just as you love your own body, okay? The goal is to love your wife like Christ. But the baseline is at least love her like yourself, okay? That's like, that, that's, that's as, as, as low as you need to go. But see, in the first century, that's a high bar. Now, he makes some comments uh, that, that, that are interesting uh, in verse, verses 28 and 29. He says, look, someone who loves his wife loves himself. After all, nobody hates his own body. He feeds it, he takes care of it, just like the Messiah does the church because we are all parts of his body. And so Paul is always bringing us back to the love of Christ for the church. It's the example, it's the goal. But I don't want you to miss, because I've talked about marriage a lot in the last few minutes, okay? This passage is not just, remember verse 21. The whole context of all this is marriage is a, a specific thing he's gonna talk about now, but Paul wants this for all of us in the church with one another to lovingly be devoted to each other because we're being filled with the spirit. So all of these things about Christ loving the church, they're for all of us to love one another in this way, sacrificially giving up so that we can care for each other well. What Paul does say is that in verses 31 and 32, that marriage is an opportunity to demonstrate a tiny sliver of the love of Christ for the church. So he says, this is why a man leaves father and mother, is joined to his wife, the two become one flesh. Now that, that phrase joined to his wife, it means to be fully devoted, to be fully devoted to her and the two become one. And he says, look, there's a hidden meaning in all this. It's a mystery. The saying's very deep. He says, I'm reading this statement as referring to the Messiah and the church. How does that man leave his father and mother and be one flesh? How does that, how does Paul read that relating to Christ and the church? Because that's the story of the gospel, folks. That Christ, who is eternally present with the Father, literally takes on flesh. He becomes incarnate to be with the church and to love the church and to care for the church and give his life for the church so that the church would be redeemed. And he's saying marriage then is just an opportunity to show a tiny sliver of that because the love of Christ is so great. So then I love his summary statement. It's a great summary statement. He says, anyway, each of you needs to love your own wife like you love yourself and your wife, wives, you need to just respect your husband, okay? Now moving on. It's kind of like, he's like, all right, enough of that. We're gonna move on. But I, but I wanna summarize his summary statement this way. Um, husbands, wives, tend to each other's emotional and spiritual needs. 
that's the baseline. That's how you care for somebody, okay? Care, love, they're all about need and meeting need, okay? Whether you're in marriage or whether you're in a friendship or whether you're in a city group, whether you're part of a church, even in the workplace, okay? Caring for people is about having needs, expressing needs, and having them met. So the summary statement is where I want us to turn because I don't want this all to just be a, a, a message about marriage. It's a message about this vision of being filled with the Spirit and then caring for one another well, okay? So the question is, how do we do that? How do we tend to each other's emotional and spiritual needs? I'm glad that you're asking that question, if you are, because I want to give you something, all right? I want to give you um, just a process, okay? It goes like this. Self-awareness leads to empathy, which leads to connection and care. All right, we've now, we've now crossed over into the application part of the sermon, so you, you, you can rest. Hopefully, this is going to be stuff that you, you don't have to work so hard up here and think about, like, okay, how am I going to do this? Self-awareness leads to empathy, which leads to connection and care. In other words, if you want to get good at tending to people's spiritual and emotional needs, you actually have to start with you. Well, that's a weird thing to say in church, right? I mean, this whole passage is about self-sacrificial love. Am I, now I'm supposed to focus on me? Yes, absolutely. Because we have to become aware of what's going on in us in terms of our emotional needs and spiritual needs. We have to, because if we do, then first of all, we can take that to Christ and understand how he meets and tends to us spiritually and emotionally so that we can have courage to go be present with other people who sometimes are risky to be in relationship with. You see, because our emotional needs they're speaking loudly to us all the time in all of our relationships, okay? If you're aware of them, you can be more present and listen to the needs of others. But if you're not, folks, listen, this is where the self-awareness piece is really important. If you don't know what's going on in here with you, spiritually, emotionally, in terms of what you need in those things, and some of you are looking at me maybe like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now. It's okay, we're gonna get to that. If we're not self-aware, we're gonna spend a lot of time and effort and energy trying to answer the emotional need that we have for other people. And guess what? That doesn't work. It actually frustrates them and it frustrates you because you're like, I've been doing all these things trying to like show you that I care about you. And this person's like, what are you talking about? You haven't met a single need that I have. And you're like, what are you talking, that's all I've been doing. Because oftentimes what we do is we have this core emotional need in relationship and it's sitting right here on our hearts. We're carrying it around with us and we take it and we project it out over every, everybody's heads, over the heads of everybody in the room. And we see it because we're not aware of it and then we try to tend to it, right? This is what we do. It actually hinders us from listening. It hinders us from being present because we're trying to fix our own emotional need for a person who may not even have that need. But, but, if we can start to become more aware 
of what's going on here, we can take it to Christ. And in that, we can get a reminder that every single one of our needs, every single one of the questions that we walk around with in life, they're answered yes and amen in him. But here's the thing, folks. You can't stop there. Yes, does God provide all of our needs? Absolutely. But guess what? God often provides our needs. He provides for them in the context of the people of God that are sitting around you right now. Jesus answers yes to all my needs, but you know what Jesus can't do? He can't give me a hug right now. And sometimes I need an embodied hug from my wife or from a friend to let me know that it's gonna be okay. But if I can't express that to the person that I want it from, if I don't know that's actually what's going on in me, it can cause some barriers in the relationships that we're trying to have, whether you're married or whether we're just talking about your small group at church. All right, uh, plug, shameless plug for My Boulevard and for um, something that we have in My Boulevard called uh, Known 360. Self-awareness is one of the main goals of Known 360. Um, it'll probably be hosted here at Blueprint in the fall again but you don't have to wait till the fall, okay? If you go to myblvd.co, myboulevard.co, all right, you can click on the city syllabus. That's what we call our online learning platform. The city syllabus has known 360 in it, and it is all about work, helping you have this self-awareness piece, working through it from a biblical framework. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you know a secret. I'm gonna give you a cheat code right now, okay? Here's the cheat code. Don't go sign up for it immediately because you only get a five-day trial, okay? Set aside time. Hey, I don't care. I want you to go and subscribe to this thing and support our work, but I don't really care. I want you to grow in your ability to do relationships well. So pick a weekend where you can go through this content, sign up for it, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, part of Sunday, download the workbook, work through the workbook, and then cancel the subscription if you want to. I don't care. I want you to get this. Growing in these self-awareness tools, understanding what's going on in here emotionally and in terms of your needs, it's gonna help so much. Now, you don't wanna do all that? That's cool, I got another option for you, okay? I'm trying to make this practical at this point because we're, we're running low on time. Especially if you're married, I think this would be a great thing to do uh, with your spouse. Hey, if you're single, you, you get to pick whoever you want. You know, you can do this with a friend, a co you know, a roommate, whatever. But if you're married, you really ought to do this with your spouse, okay? There's a tool out there. It's called the seven primal questions, all right? And it gets you in touch with one of the primary needs, emotional needs that you have right in here. You carry it around with you all the time, and you carry it around with you as kind of a question that you ask, okay? So if you want to, you can go to my website, dwesleyprice.com. Dot com. D stands for David, that's my first name. My mama did that to me. dwesleyprice.com, scroll down, you'll see a button that says take the free assessment. Okay, this is not because I want more traffic to my website, I'm trying to sell you something. It's because I, I wanna get you access to it quickly. And I want you to have a way to go back, click the back button and get some help if you need it, okay? Take the assessment, 10, 15 minutes. It's gonna give you what's called kind of your primary question. And this is amazing. If you take this, 
and you sit down with your spouse and you say, hey, what was your question? This was my question. And then you have this conversation. Would you tell me two ways that I answer your question with a yes? Two things I do that answers your question with a yes. And then you trade. And then you do the harder part. And you say, would you be willing to tell me two ways that I answer your question with a no? If you will do this and have this conversation, I promise you, you will take big leaps forward in your relationship, no matter who you do this with. If you don't wanna do this with somebody, just do it on your own and you're gonna get this self-awareness piece. You're gonna know what you carry around all the time when you're interacting with people and even what main thing you probably project over their heads and try to tend to that keeps you from actually creating a non-anxious presence that can sit and listen to what's going on with the person in front of you so that you can meet their need and not your own. I hope that sounds good to you because it is good. And most importantly, if you can find out that question, that thing that you're carrying around, and you can start taking it every day in your relationship with Christ, you can start looking for how in God's word, he assures you that the triune God of the universe is graciously and lovingly answering your question with a yes, so that he can be your firm foundation. And from there, you can get the courage to risk with the people that God's placed in your life. Because let's be honest, relationships, they're risky. And you've been hurt before, you've been harmed before. And so instead of holding back, instead of masking over, instead of trying to keep your distance, what if you had a way to take steps forward, to have real genuine relationships that could result in real connection and care you know what the outcome would be? What Paul's hoping for you. That being filled with the spirit, you would begin to be devoted to each other and love and you would care for one another in such a way that the outside world would go, I want that. I want a community that cares for me like that. Because that's what Paul's hope is, that we would so reflect the love of Christ that it would be amazing both to us here and to people outside. And like I said, if you'll go do that and go through the website, you can hit the back bar, back button if you want to a couple of times and go to the website. I got a Google voice number there. I got a contact form there. Not so I can sell you something, but, but if you go and you take this question thing or you just want to know like, hey, what did you mean by this today? Go, go look that up. Reach out to me. I want to help because you're my brothers and my sisters in Christ. So if you feel like you need help with some of this, you want some, something clarified, go, go there and reach out to me. Just say, hey, I'm from Blueprint. I got some questions, okay? <sighs> Make sense? Okay. Well, I'm gonna pray for us. And uh, we're gonna turn toward a, a time of communion. And uh, I wanna just pray for us and open some space for us to reflect. And here's the thing, this time to reflect, um, 
I think sometimes we think that like, oh, the reflection time before communion, that's where like, I need to think mostly about all the bad things I did this week and make sure that I told God about those before I take communion. What if you did this instead? What if in the next few moments as we're reflecting, as, as our servers are, are, are getting ready, our family members are gonna come and bless us, what if in the next couple of minutes you reflected on this? What, based on what we read today about the love of Christ for his church, based on that, what do you think that God thinks about you when he thinks about you? Based on that text of scripture, what do you think God thinks about you when you look at the love of Christ in Ephesians chapter five? Because if we begin to see ourselves the way that he sees us when we're in Christ, loved, accepted, full access to the community of God, full access to his presence, I think that will prepare us for what we might need to confess before communion better than just focusing on what bad thing did I do last week? Let's focus on God and how he views you in Christ in the next couple of moments. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll, we'll reflect Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.